topic I want to cover this morning, a little bit of a heads up. <laughs> there might be a, you might get triggered by the topic this morning, but I hope that you'll give it a fair hearing if it doesn't trigger you too badly with religious trauma and whatever. But I want to talk about what is the place of purity or power post-deconstruction? What is the place of purity or power post-deconstruction? <clears throat> now, as most of you know, unless this is the first time you're watching um, me speak, you know that I was a, a charismatic pastor for many years, um, actually involved with the charismatic movement, which was sort of an offshoot of the Pentecostal movement. I don't really identify as Pentecostal. Um, but definitely charismatic. <clears throat> Got saved, radically saved in uh, 1989, fall of 1989. And then had this experience where I got baptized, what we call baptized in the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke with glossolalia or speaking in tongues. Now, I remember I was very young, 20 years old, 21 years old, and uh, began to pursue this life of purity and power within this framework of the charismatic church. So this video may not be for everybody. Again, some of you may get triggered just by the words purity and power and be talking about some of the things from that time period in my life. And if that's you, you may not want to watch this and that's fine. I hope you'll come back and watch again or check out some of the other stuff. If you're on my YouTube channel that I've done, this is just what's been on my mind all week long, basically. So it's what I wanted to talk about. <clears throat> and also if you're super, uh, um, if you don't have a background, let's just say it that way. If you don't have any kind of background in Pentecostal charismatic circles, uh, this may be a little bit harder for you to follow because I'm not going to have time to define every term. But those of you that come or are familiar with any kind of a charismatic vineyard movement, word of faith, Pentecostal, Tradition, I think you'll appreciate the discussion this morning. What, uh, so one, one of the things that we held really, really, uh, in high esteem, or at least I did, was these two ideas of purity and power. I wanted to have purity in my life. I wanted to have purity in my ministry. And I believed that purity was essential to hosting the presence of God and being able to walk in power and by power we meant we meant a lot of different things uh we meant the power to live the christian life the power to walk uh, above the flesh right the power over sin or to live free from sin <clears throat> so to not be driven by our lusts or be ensnared by uh worry or sexual sin or financial sin or whatever. So that's kind of what we meant by purity. But that was essential to like hosting what we would call the presence of God. And then there was this idea of power. And power meant signs and wonders. Power meant healings and miracles, at least for me, and signs and wonders. But not just that, uh, but and, and not just power over sin, but also power to bring transformation, power to bring transformation. 
transformation to self and power to bring transformation to others, which we believe that we did primarily through speaking an anointed word, a word that had the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit on it that could break strongholds off of people's lives, break personal strongholds off of people's lives so that they could be set free from uh, mental oppressions so that they could be healed. Like my favorite Bible verse was Luke 4.18, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me, it says. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to bring deliverance to the captive and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that were bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And that was the verse that framed out my entire approach to really living life. Like my life was there to be a vessel and a channel of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in order to uh, bring these types of experiences to other people in whatever way I could. And oftentimes that was through preaching. And there was power that we would see in meetings. I remember one particular meeting that I was at that was out of town. And there was a uh, <clears throat> a young lady there who um, her parents had brought her up. She was a teenager, had brought her up to the front. And... Long story short, she was, uh, she had some kind of eating disorder. I can't remember if it was anorexia and bulimia or one or the other, but it was some combination of an eating disorder. And, uh, and just through a really simple act, really simple sort of just speaking with her and really simple sort of, uh, prophetic act, what we used to call the presence of the Holy Spirit just came over her. And so the evidence of this would be oftentimes a person would get flushed. Uh, their eyes would flutter and oftentimes they would, um, fall backwards, uh, and lay on the floor, which we call being slain in the spirit, which gosh, it was hard enough being charismatic and trying to explain these things to people. And now having come completely out of that realm and having explored so many other different philosophies and things and then looking at it and just hearing myself talk about these things and then assuming how other people, especially if you're a materialist or an atheist, um, how that appears, how it, it totally appears like a con job or it appears like mass hypnosis. And I don't want to argue all those points. I'm just telling you what happened. This is just the facts. So, uh, and, and that was it. That was the entire thing. Probably took two minutes or whatever. And, of course, she gets up. She's feeling something that she hadn't felt before. And I finish speaking with her and her parents and move on to the to the next thing, right? Next person or whatever. I think that was the last person that I talked to that day, and I think the pastor and his wife were taking me out to lunch. So a year later or so, I come back into the same area, not the same town or the same church, but I'm in the same area doing meetings out of town. And when I finish the set of meetings, it was a Sunday morning service. When I finished that Sunday morning service, they said, there's somebody that wants to see you, that wants to speak with you. And I remember this um, 
beautiful, radiant young lady comes up with her parents and gives me a hug. And I didn't recognize her. And then they tell me the story about how she was struggling with all of these issues of bulimia and anorexia and depression. And that that prayer or that simple act, it wasn't really a prayer, it was an act. And I can't, I I just don't want to take the time to explain it. And I don't remember exactly what it was. And it would sound very, very foolish. But that simple act, they said, completely transformed her. That uh, from that moment on, she no longer had those issues or those problems in her life. And she certainly was transformed. Even her countenance and everything was completely different than what I had remembered from a year before that. Because I remember seeing her before and just thinking, wow, she's um, she looks like she's dying. Like, not just from being skinny or whatever, but just her countenance, her her energy, her energetic signature was one of death. And then a year later, you know, this energetic signature is one of life. Now, what? A, so a lot of people in the charismatic and Pentecostal world would experience these kinds of things. A lot of uh, preachers in the charismatic world would then capitalize on these things. They would they would market these things. They would monetize these things in that they would, you know, share these huge testimonies and then take these big offerings. And um, and it really served to, I think. Uh, mislead people to snare people. It's interesting that Jesus, you know, he really didn't, you can't, I, I mean, we read that Jesus went and the multitudes came to him and he healed their sick. And we put that in a modern Western sort of, uh, tent revival meeting framework or church service framework. And we think that he did what we did. Uh, and I'm not sure that, I, I think a lot of that's just assumptions, right? But he, um, definitely in, in the scriptures at times when he would heal people, he would tell them not to tell anybody about it. And he certainly wasn't sort of making a business out of this type of stuff. Uh, in other words, exploiting it. That's what I'm looking for. Exploiting it for personal gain. And, um, and that was always distasteful to me. And so I tried really, really hard to make sure that whenever stuff happened like that, that it was pure, that uh, that it didn't get exploited for personal gain or financial gain and things like that. But that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about power. I'm talking about the power to see people set free in a moment of time rather than taking years in therapy or counseling to do it. Not that there's anything wrong with taking years of therapy and counseling and not to say that one's better than the other, uh, probably going the years in therapy and counseling, the insight and the personal growth that you gain from that is probably greater than just being delivered from an issue like that in a moment of time. Um, but being able to speak in a way that uh, makes people think that transforms thinking, that was also one of these elements of power, the power of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 would talk about the power of the Holy Spirit that would come over you to give you the power to testify, to give you the power to be a witness. So all of that to say that much of my life was shaped around this kind of a reality, this kind of a paradigm, that the Holy Spirit uh, comes upon us, the Holy Spirit fills us, the Holy Spirit anoints us, 
and then we become a channel or a vessel through which the Spirit of God would work to, again, heal, set the captives free, uh, and transform people's lives. And the key to having that kind of power was purity, having purity. Now, so, so that, that was the paradigm, right? So like the Bible is truth, testifying to the Bible, testifying to the Bible under the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit comes in and things happen. And the reality is for me that a lot of times that was confirmed. Um, not just once or twice, not just four or five times, not just, uh, countless times there were testimonies of people who were impacted by purity and impacted by power. And so then that kind of a mental frame though, that kind of, that kind of belief system, when you believe that you're the vessel of God, when you believe that you're the servant of the Lord, uh, all this kind of toxic stuff can get in there with it too. <clears throat> and all this sort of, um, bifurcating yourself or splitting yourself off spirit soul light body um you know spirit flesh spirit soul and body your your light body versus your your shadow self right and it just creates this very sort of abusive relationship within yourself trying to be pure trying to be the servant trying to be the one that is <clears throat> feeding the multitudes with the presence and power of God. So finally, I, I get to this point where, like, I'm just spent. I'm just spent. I'm just burnt out. I've just given all that I have left to give, and I haven't taken care of myself. There was no place for self-care. And it was just a it was just a really good time, really great time, but also really just very, very difficult and very, very painful time as well that started for me back in 2016 and I started on this healing process and this healing journey and then eventually deconstructed could see the uh, toxicity in what we were doing even though there was benefit and um, I don't I don't know how many people really look at how we presented ourselves and how we profiled in ministry as being toxic or hurtful I've had many people tell me, that it wasn't, that they couldn't relate. People would get on the religious trauma group that we started, and they said, I can't relate to that because our church, we never really experienced that. We never really went through that. You never really presented those things. Uh, and I did always try to present something that was life-giving and empowering for people. That doesn't mean I did it perfectly. It doesn't mean that I didn't hurt people, and that there, there aren't, uh, uh, isn't, you know, people that are hurt out there, or people certainly, especially since I've gone through this deconstruction, that feel a left or abandoned or betrayed or whatever. Um, so through this process of disentangling myself from religion and disentangling myself from ministry and disentangling myself from um, charismatic stuff, um, I became very secular. So I'm going to use this kind of vision of, you know, secular from the sacred or, so by secular I just mean 
very humanistic, very logic and reason oriented, working what we call a secular career, meaning that there's no spirituality, there's no religion, there's no God, there's no anything paranormal or extra normal or whatever we want to call it. It's hard to find a language these days. But that didn't mean, mean that my, you know, that my quest or my thirst or my hunger for spirituality uh, went away. It just meant I've got to be able to, like, I, I think what I've been wanting to do is, is how do I hold on to the, the good that was part of my past life while liberating it from all that was toxic from my former <laughs> identification and existence. So that doesn't mean that I'm going back to charismatic or Pentecostalism or even Christianity in any kind of sense that could be called Christian in the world today. But I, I just want to, I want to invite you to think about the idea of power but invite you to think about it differently. So purity was defined as keeping ourselves pure from the world, keeping ourselves pure from sexual desire, uh, it, uh, illicit sexual desire. So any sexual desire that would uh, happen inside of us, outside of the context of marriage. Um Keeping ourselves uh, pure from uh, negative thoughts, negative thoughts, negative thinking. Keeping ourselves pure from um, things like anger and and uh, stuff like that. So, so this idea of purity was was really sort of a moral legislation of our inner life. And so, blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus said, they shall see God. Right. So it had to do with sin, and it had to do with legislating things, and it had to do with what was acceptable to the Holy Spirit and what wasn't acceptable to the Holy Spirit. And like I said, that just creates a war within yourself. That causes you to, that leads to suppression. When you moralize, you put value judgments on any emotional experience, then what that does is, is it prevents you from seeing the value of every emotional experience and it prevents you from uh, experiencing that experience in the appropriate way or the appropriate context because it's outlawed, it's illegal, so you have to shove it down, you have to stuff it. So this leads to all kinds of repression. And if you go to Derek Day's page or to his YouTube channel, I would encourage you to watch Theology fr- uh, fri- Theology. Oy, sorry, guys. Sorry, Derek. Freeology Friday. From this last Friday, we had a special guest, uh, my friend Doug Wentz, and he, he just brilliantly talks about this whole concept of suppression and the light body. And it, anyway, it's it's a brilliant talk. I'd really want you to go out and listen to that, especially if you struggled with some of these things. So Leslie says it was exhausting. Yes, it was exhausting. So when I'm talking about purity, I'm not talking about purity in that sense. I'm talking about purity in the sense of authenticity. In fact, I'm talking about the exact opposite of what the church taught us. In other words, what I'm saying is that we can still think about purity. We can still value purity. There can still be a benefit for us in thinking in terms of purity, but it has nothing to do, absolutely nothing 
to do with uh, the sexually oppressive culture of the evangelical Christian church that really has been from its inception, not just the evangelical church, but the church from its inception uh, has all um, uh, it has just been misogynistic and has eradicated this. Here's the ironic thing in mystical language. Mystical language is very sexual. If you uh, and, and there's some uh, don't I want to get into all that. I don't think I want to get into all that. <laughs> I kind of already did. So just to give an example, Ephesians chapter 5, some of you may be able to relate to this, but it talks about uh, husbands love your wives as Christ also loved the church. And there's drawn out of that language then this what's known as a in mystical Christian mystical circles as a bridal paradigm that Christ is the uh, bridegroom and the church or the believer is his bride and then there's all this erotic language that gets worked into christian mysticism in terms of intimacy and loving and all of that stuff but there's no feminine representation except from the church um anyway i don't want to get into all that (laughs) what i'm trying to say is is that when we, we can talk about purity without it having any of the baggage or doing any of the damage to people in their sexuality and their relationship with erotic energy. So that's not purity. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, but that's purity culture. So again, you have to clarify these terms for people that are coming out. And I'm not talking about, you know, there are things out there and some of them are pure and holy, like prayer and devotion and fasting and Bible study and fellowship and uh, being in nature. You know, those are the pure things that you're allowed to do. And then there's all these impurities, <clears throat> other impure things out there like, um, you know, raunchy movies or uh, hip hop music or rock and roll music or you see what I'm saying? That was kind of the Christian paradigm. Those things were impure. These things over here were pure. I'm not talking about that at all. Not talking about that at all. When I'm talking about purity, I'm talking about the way I want to think about purity is I want to think about it in the sense of authenticity. Authenticity. So, in other words, if I have H2O, one part molecule hydrogen to two parts oxygen, and I have a lot of it, and that's all there is, then that is pure water, right? Like, that's authentic water. If I have, uh, if I mix it with something, if I take water and I mix it with something, I put minerals in it, put um, electrolytes in it, now it's got something else other than H2O, so it's not pure H2O, so it's not authentic water. This analogy is going to break down at some point, but I'm, hopefully I'm communicating. Uh, certain types of medicine, you know, you have certain milligrams of medicine in it. Um, if you took, if you took just the medicine, the pure medicine, it might be too strong and it might be harmful. So maybe it needs to be 
diluted in a sense, if that makes sense. But I'm trying to pull purity out of this moral context and bring it into a context of authenticity, a context of authenticity. So in that sense, then, it's the exact opposite, because religion, purity in religion will make you betray yourself. It'll make you give up your authenticity in order to fit into the group, in order to please the group, in order to be fitting in the group, in order to be pleasing to God, in order to be the servant of the Lord. I have to give up a certain amount of myself. I have to give up my happiness. I have to give up my self-care. I have to be selfless there for others. And certainly the symbol of highest form of love within Christianity is Jesus Christ on the cross. And so this self-sacrificing love is somehow the highest form of love. And so all of that creates damage in the soul. It creates damage in the spirit. It creates uh, a, a real level of inauthentic living and a lot of self-betrayal. And so the more you gave into that, the more that you gave into purity culture, the more that you gave into this self-sacrificing idea of selfless love for others, the more that you sacrificed parts of yourself and betrayed parts of yourself, betrayed your erotic nature or betrayed your sexual orientation or betrayed your love of certain types of uh, activities or experiences, and I'm talking about things like music, or I'm talking about things like movies, or the arts, or uh, the more you gave up of yourself, the more you made decisions where you went against your own conscience, or you went against your own heart, or you went against your own value system even. You went against your own value system. Like, it's okay to have a value system that works for you, and your value system does not have to be dictated to you by anybody else. Nobody else has the right to dictate your value system to you. And again, when we use these words, they become conflated. Because the Christian me, here's me using the terms values in the sense of morality. And I start thinking about associations with things like Focus on the Family and James Dobson and Bill Gothard and... Pat Robertson, God rest his soul, and whatever, because because they talk about, you know, Christian values and family values. But again, value just means something that's valuable to you, something that has meaning to you, your pearls, basically. And so what happens to us oftentimes is that we question our values. We question what's important to us, and then we betray ourselves and we betray our values because we think somehow ours are unclean or ours are impure or ours are immoral. And somehow uh, 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 the, the church then gets to dictate. And because there is a social risk and because we have social value and we get we, we want to be honored in the group, we want to be accepted in the group. And that might be your value. And that's OK to have that value. But we have to subtract from our values or forsake our values or throw our pearls down. Right. So that we can pick up somebody else's 
and take it on as our own. And that is self-betrayal and that is brainwashing and that's mind control. And that is, that, that is incredibly damaging that we do that to people. And that's incredibly damaging when we do that to ourselves. We are robbing people of what's valuable to them in their lives because we're enforcing over them by saying what we value is more important than what you value. And so we cause people to betray themselves. We cause people to damage themselves psychologically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And then they find themselves on the outs, right? Then they find themselves on the outside. And boy, could I tell you horror stories about churches that made people stand up and confess their sins or uh, in, in front of the church group uh, and expose the most private details of their lives and shit on what they valued, <laughs> What they valued, they wouldn't have gotten into those areas if they hadn't valued it in the first place. And instead of finding a place for it to be sacred. So do you see what happens? You see what happens? So when I'm talking about values, I'm talking about what's valuable to you, what's important to you, what you value, what you want to experience, the way you want to leave you, uh, lead your life. That's what I mean. I'm not talking about uh, ethics. I'm not talking about morality. I'm talking about values. So I hope that that's helpful in clarifying that. And so then we become impure, actually. We become less pure. That's, that's the irony of the thing. We, we do this in the name of purity, but we become less pure because we become a, uh, a lesser representation, uh, a lesser version of our authentic selves. But that doesn't mean that we can't value purity. That doesn't mean that there can't be a place for purity. And so if that's the case, then then how do we become impure in that sense? Well, again, to build on what I'm talking about, we become impure when we add on <laughs> or carry or bring into ourselves things that are not ours, things that don't belong to us. And boy, there's there's many, many ways in which we do this, many ways in which we do this. To be incongruent about something is to be impure. So let's say that you want to change your life in some way. Let's say you want to make more money. Let's say you want to get out of a relationship that's toxic for you. Let's say that it could be anything, you know, you want to lose weight, anything about you. That you want to change, transform. And you, you, so you want to, you, you want to be able to think positively about that, not just so that, you know, the law of attraction can work, but just so that you have emotional motivation to take action, right? If, if you don't believe that that outcome is possible for you, it, you're not as likely to take action for it. You're not as likely to develop maybe the habits that you need to develop in order to, um, do the things you need to do to fulfill that outcome that you're desiring in your life, right? So you're, part of you is thinking positive about it, but then another part of you is super negative about it. Part of you is uh, inspired about it, and part of you is bitter that you even have to do it to begin with. So you're incongruent, right? So that would not be purity. That would be something other than purity. There's not a pure intention. There's an intention, but then it's got this mixture of 
negativity that comes with it, right? And so in order to become congruent, then you might have to do some internal work and look at why these parts are in conflict with one another and where do these things come from and exploring that within yourself. And sometimes it's helpful to do that with a good life coach or it's helpful to do that with a good therapist because, or, or with a really good friend who's balanced and healthy and will speak truth to you because it's, it's, it can be very hard to sort that stuff out for ourselves. So that would be one aspect of purity. Now this brings me to where I'm at today in terms of what I believe about the nature of reality. So one of the things that I've done in the last year is I've really tried to let myself be challenged in every way possible um, in terms of my belief in the esoteric or my belief in the mystical or my belief in the transcendent or to just make it plain and simple, my belief in God. God is is a tricky word. It's got a lot of baggage to it, right, um, <clears throat> for some of us. But I've really tried to let myself be challenged, and I've really looked at, you know, philosophical systems. I did some videos on here on the YouTube channel about materialism, why I'm not an atheist, about materialism, about what happens when, uh, from, you know, reading really smart people. And so if I were to say where I am today, I would say that I probably hold closest the ideas of Kabbalah, if you're familiar with that, the, the nature, the structure of the universe as it's structured in the four worlds of Kabbalah. Uh, and I'll come back and do some teaching on that. Or Hermeticism, uh, if you read the book, uh, it's kind of cheeky. Um, but the book, The Kabbalion, by the Three Initiates, where it talks about all is mind. Or I'm definitely in the philosophical camp of idealism and idealism is a philosophy that says the nature of reality is not material. It is not matter. Idealism says the nature of reality is not energy. In fact, idealism would say that the nature of reality is not necessarily quantifiable at all, but that the nature of reality is mind. The nature of reality is consciousness and everything else comes out of consciousness. Now, that's a philosophical system that has nothing to do with um, uh, fundamentalist Christianity. I almost wanted to say it had nothing to do with Christianity, but, but Neoplatonism is a philosophical system that comes out of idealism, and Christianity was shaped and formed, its thinkers were informed, and it was placed within the context of Neoplatonism. But that doesn't mean that, say, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. That doesn't mean that Neoplatonism validates Christianity or that idealism validates Christianity. In other words, if Neoplatonism, parts of it are true, then I have to come back and be Christian. Or if idealism is true, then I have to come back and make myself subservient to the Bible. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that Christianity grew out of the garden of idealism. So if that, hopefully that makes sense. But 
so the idea is, is that there is the uh, levels of consciousness in the human being. So let's do it this way. You have a conscious mind, the mind that you're focused on, the mind of your attention, wherever your attention is at the moment, that's your conscious mind. And your conscious mind is there to make choices. Um, <clears throat> so the, 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 the will of the person is involved in the conscious mind. And then you have uh the subconscious mind you have the subconscious mind that is all of the collection of programs that you've <coughs> collected over the years that's part of your personal space <coughs> so personal memories the ability to type the ability to play piano the ability to drive all that stuff that's all in the subconscious um, and there's a lot of content there. And then there is this idea within Hermeticism, conscious mind, attention, subconscious mind, everything uh, that, that's part of your personal experience, the composite of your memories and that kind of stuff. And then there is this idea of a superconscious mind or a universal mind or a transpersonal mind or a transcendent mind, uh, a super mind, if you will, a super consciousness, if you will. And this super mind, this super consciousness is what reality is. And everything else is a manifestation of this super mind or this super consciousness. And so John chapter one, verse one is a description of a certain form of Idealism or idealistic philosophy. In the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was the mind. In the beginning was the word. That's this idea of superconsciousness. And out of this, and in this word was light, energy, and in this word was life, the animating force of creation. And out of this source of energy and out of this source of mind and out of this source of logos comes all things. And all things were made by it and through it. And without it, nothing has been made that has been made. And it carries the stamp of the creator, the light and life of the creator in all things, including you and you and I, especially are representatives of this. See, I'm freed myself now from having to be in one camp or the other. It's okay for me and it's okay for you if it works for you to go back to the stories, to the mythos, to the, the, the ideas of the scriptures and pull those out and draw meaning from them. And so yes, I believe that as human beings, we are the icons of this. We, we are a, a, a unique and significant representation of superconsciousness that we experience at various different levels of perception. But most of us live in very small compartments of our being, which was the whole point of my last video on what happens when you be let logic become Lord. I, I, I hear some of my friends, and I love you guys, but I hear some of you saying, I'm, I'm going to lead by logic. I'm going to lead by reason. You're going to become an asshole. And you know how I know that? You know how I know that? Because it functions in a certain part of the left hemisphere of the brain, at least the way that we think about logic or breaking things down into their smallest parts. And there have been people who have severed their corpus callosum. So for those of you, if I'm using too big a language, you've got a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere. 
And you have this tissue network that causes the two parts, the two halves of the brain to communicate together. And this corpus callosum works like a filter. And so you have a perceptual reality in the right side of your brain and you have a perceptual reality in the left side of the brain and they're completely different. Being left-brained has nothing to do with being more logical or language-oriented or linear-oriented like we think. And being right-brained has nothing to do with uh, being more creative and more emotional and more imaginative. It has nothing to do with what you're putting out, in other words. It has everything to do with the way you are perceptually seeing the world. So the differences between the right brain and the left brain are not output. You're not a right brain person because you're artistic. That's a myth that's that's been proven wrong by neuroscience. And you're not a left brain person because you live like Mr. Spock from Star Trek and you're just very logical and linear and 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 all that stuff. That's not what it is. It has nothing to do with output. The differences between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere all has to do with input and our perceptual abilities and the way that we see the world. That's what the latest findings in neuroscience tells us. And so there have been people who have severed that corpus callosum. (laughs) And so they develop two very distinct personalities. They develop a personality that is very left brain oriented and they develop a personality that's very right brain oriented, but it has nothing to do with what like you think. It's based on the perceptions. The left brain breaks things down into its parts to understand how the parts uh, work in relationship to cause and effect. It's about perceiving the world in its parts and perceiving the world in cause and effect. I'm redoing what I did. <laughs> I don't know why I'm getting off on this. <clears throat> and so... When people say, I want to let science lead, I want to let materialistic science lead, I want to let my logic lead, I want to let reason read, lead, then what you're doing is you're, you're, you may be anchoring, you may be turning down the right hemisphere. The right hemisphere thinks relationally. The right hemisphere thinks holistically. The right hemisphere thinks in terms of context. The right hemisphere thinks in terms of the bigger picture. And so what they've discovered is in these people that wear their corpus callosum, people, the, the left brain, is really a jerk. The left brain personality is really a jerk. The right brain personality, not so much. And so my point is, my point is that if idealism is true and not scientific materialism, if the stuff that's out there is primarily made of something that can't be quantified and can't be measured, because it's the stuff of mind, it's the stuff of consciousness, and that everything came out of this source of consciousness, this super consciousness, and then we exist as representations of that, then we have very deep levels of consciousness that we can have access to, that we can experience. But most people live in a consciousness ghetto because you're doing the same thing. When you say, I'm going to let logic and reason lead, and it's more important than these other aspects, then what you're doing is you're doing the exact same thing you did as a Christian. The geometry of your heart, as Doug talked about on Friday, has not changed one bit. The shape of your heart and your spiritual essence hasn't changed one bit. You're just... Just exchanging one mistress for another. 
And instead of saying, I'm going to let my spiritual experiences or my intuition or whatever it was before lead or, or, you know, whatever, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to exalt logic to lordship and that's fine, but you're going to live in a consciousness ghetto. Because there's a wealth, like you've got the whole mansion and you're going to live in the servants' quarters when you do that. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> and the more people that accept that, the more that we buy into that, the more that we make a God out of science, the more that we make a religion out of science, the more we may exalt logic, then our society is not necessarily going to progress like you think it is. You're going to create Frankenstein's monster. Because you're living in a consciousness ghetto. In, 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 again, I'm going to feel free to quote scripture. In my father's house, there are many mansions. In other words, there are many aspects of consciousness. And so interaction with God, purity is about purity of consciousness. It's about your unique signature being preserved. I'm not carrying someone else's energy because they're negative and I'm letting it influence mine and now I'm becoming negative. I'm not carrying someone else's burden where I'm becoming codependent and doing for them what they should be able to do for themselves because I'm getting sucked in to their vortex by their, uh, however it is that they're manipulating me by the emotional strings that they're pulling on. I'm preserving my energy field. I'm preserving my unique uh, identity and signature. I'm not, I'm, I'm preserving my unique value system, right? But then, I can also, through altering states of consciousness, and I'm, I'm getting ready, hopefully, to put together a series along some of these things. But you, then you interact. And so now this brings me back to what is power. What is power? Is there a place for power? What was that essence that we were experiencing back in the charismatic world? What was that sense of the anointing? What was that sense of the presence of God? If it wasn't a current that was coming from this sort of super conscious realm that we were tapping into, and sure, it was being filtered through religious garbage and religious nonsense, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't a current of blessing or a current of grace or something bigger than ourselves, something outside our individuated consciousness, something outside of our individuated consciousness that does not have access to enough consciousness to really effect change according to our will. So in other words, I can't just will uh, water into wine with my personal consciousness. <laughs> with my personal consciousness, I can't will water into wine because I don't have access to the enough of the programming to change the program in reality. In other words, I can't hack the video game and get in there and change and get in there where the computer language is and change it effectually enough to bring what I'm willing or I'm desiring to come to pass. That would be power. So power requires then if all things came out of the logos, if all things came out of mind, if all is mind and all came out of mind, then it becomes possible to shift into and receive or participate in realms of God, in realms of what we call spirit, in realms of what we call divine or the super mind or the super consciousness or source or whatever language you're, <coughs> you're comfortable with.
Again, I'm not trying to push something. I'm not trying to push anything. I'm sharing this with you. I'm not trying to convert you to anything. I'm just saying this is where I'm at right now. So that means then that there can be a place for power. There can be a place for accessing something greater than myself in time of need. I might be able to appeal or what we might call prayer. I might be able to, to appeal to something in the universal mind or the universal consciousness. I might be able to draw strength from a soul family or from ancestors or disembodied non-physical conscious entities. I might be able to appeal to them. I might be able to petition to them. I might be able to receive help and guidance from those things. There's nothing wrong with that. Some of you are so in bondage to deconstruction. Like you're so deconstructed that you're in bondage to your own deconstruction. You're so religious about not being religious. You've exchanged one Lord for another Lord. So what I'm saying is, let's let's stop with this value <laughs> judging of these kinds of things. Because that's not purity. And don't live inside a ghetto of logic only or reason only or emotional. I mean, man, experience it all. Go for it all. Go for the hearts. Go for the feeling. Go for the experience. Uh, uh, press into things that you don't understand. Allow yourself to embrace the mystery of this universe and the mystery of this world and the mystery of what it means to be a human being. The last thing I want to live in, and I don't care if it is true. I don't care if it is true. This is my atheistic Pascal's wager. I'm going to tell you right now. If materialism is true, if the stuff that's out there is just energy evolving and matter... That ideal of the world to me is depressing and it stinks. And if for no other reason, that's why I refuse to be in bondage to that kind of a closed system of thinking and reality and certainty. Because that means that we really are just a cosmic accident. We really are. We really do just, we came about as a random anomaly of interactions between subatomic particles <laughs> and, and biological materials to just become these self-reflective, to evolve into these self-reflecting animals. And even evolution itself has no teleos. It has no end goal. It has no terminus. It has no direction or no plan or no purpose. And that means your life has no plan. Your life has no direction. Your life has no purpose except to exist here and get as much out of this material experience as you possibly can. Give as much back to this material experience as you possibly can. And then when you die, boom, lights out. Now, if that sounds great to you and that's freeing to you and that's liberating to you, then bless you. Bless you. To me, it's depressing. I'd, it's so depressing. It's so depressing. It's so hopeless. It creates life for me that is so meaningless and so empty because I'm going to tell you right now that material things for me, they don't satisfy me. There are a lot of people that material experiences for them satisfies them, but materialism for me is not satisfying. I'm much more like the woman at the well who's, who's, who's looking for something that will quench him, that'll be satisfying. And, and it's like Jesus says to her, if you drink from this well, you'll thirst again. He shows up to her at the sixth hour, which biblically speaking is the number of man. So if you drink at man's wells of, of materialism, he's telling her that, that this isn't going to satisfy you, but if you'll let me give you a gift, 
Now, remember, he's the Logos. He's the universal. He's the representation in mythos of the universal mind. So he says, let me open up something inside of you that will cause you to never thirst again. Let me open up something, a realm of consciousness inside of you that will be a well of living water springing up into everlasting life. Rivers of living water that are flowing out of you. If you believe into me, it's, it's misinterpreted. If you believe into me, if we let go of the historical, literal interpretation and we see what John is trying to do there and we understand that Jesus is the figurative, mythological representation of the Logos in the story that is pointing you to the fact that you are also part of that Logos, that you are also divine, that you and the Father are also one, that in the Father's house there are many mansions then we can understand this mythically that she shows up at the sixth hour and she's thirsty. And, and, and then he says, he says, go and call your husband. And it literally, there, there is no word for husband in the Greek. He says, go and call your man. And she says, I have no man. And he says, you're right. You have five men. So five men. You have five men attached to you. The early church father says, you're married to your five physical senses. You're married to materialism. That's how they would have interpreted that. But we can put it in this context in light of impurity. You've got not sexual impurity, but you have taken on the philosophies and the ideologies and the values of those around you and the culture around you and it's holding you in bondage and you have to leave those men not about sexual impurity but you have to leave those things that are not working for you you have to value your own pearls you have to value what's valuable unto you and let me open up inside of you something that will allow Allow you to participate in the ineffable for open you up to once again make you a vessel of power, but not a vessel of power that is in the service of anyone or anything that will take from you, compromise you, impurify you, spiritually violate you and forcefully put my thinking or their thinking in Upon you like a yoke that you have to carry. All right. (laughs) I hope this is making some sense to you guys. I hope um, I'm explaining myself well enough. So that's the path that I'm on. That's the direction that I'm going. So if you're into that... Uh, if you're watching by YouTube, subscribe to the channel. Uh, if you want to help us uh, present something like this to the world, then please consider making a monthly donation to our PayPal link. Again, it doesn't have to be a lot. Just a few dollars is going to help us so that we can do more to get more of this type of content out. Thank you for joining me for this morning's Sunday Morning Live. Um, <laughs> I'm going to just look at some of the comments here real quick. Uh, lots of good mornings. Lots of I agree. Marion says, I really enjoyed uh, Friday night. You're explaining it well. Again, you can go to Derek Day's. Um, I think it's on my page as well. Um, and you can find uh, Freeology Friday. We weren't able to get it to stream to... Uh, Facebook for some reason, so you have to go out to Derek Day's YouTube channel. So I'd encourage you to go out there anyway. Just type Derek Day <coughs> into the into the search engine, and it'll come right up for you. And you can watch last Friday's um, <laughs> Freeology with us. Uh, 
Shannon Morris says it honestly has nothing to do with the sex act, but at the same time, it's the only language that explains it. <clears throat> CJ Shine says, oh boy, the BS stories I can tell in those charismatic churches, the narcissistic flying monkeys, yes, love bombing, yes, guilt tripping for lack of faith, yes, demon casting versus mental health care, absolutely all of the above. Um, Shannon says, I like the direction this is taking you. Leslie says, I was delivered from the spirit, the quote, delivered from the spirit of, quote, homosexuality so many times. Uh, such shaming, yes, absolutely. Uh, Marietta says, this message just released years of shame and pain for me. Marietta, thank you for sharing that. That really blesses me, uh, and I'm so happy to hear that. Uh, ben says, I'll never be comfortable at the poles of religious fundamentalism and devout secularism. Casual theism and conscious agnosticism works for me. Uh, I've heard you say that before, Ben. It'd be fun to have a discussion and have you more, have you nuance that more and more clearly, uh, define that for people. And I'm sure you probably have on your page. I just, I don't have as much time to spend, um, Facebook as I used to. And frankly, I don't want to kind of became toxic for me. So I don't see a lot of your posts, but I'm sure they're brilliant. Um, let's see. Marion Hussey says, uh, this is excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Marion. Again, Marietta says, you're like fine wine, just keeps getting better. This is incredible. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> CJ says, drinking from the wells of materialistic the obros, the obros, not sure what that is. I'll have to look that up. Uh, it's becoming a seedbed of social media wars. Yes. What? Yes. <laughs> the two go together for sure. Sandra says, this is fantastic. Thank you for sharing this with us. Um, vintage, not old. Love that name. Says Aaron, you're a vessel of truth and courage. Thank you. Thank you for these comments. Jeremy says, uh, good point on deconstruction. It's a process, not a new religion. Uh, Tammy says, uh, uh, glad you said what you did about being so stuck in deconstruction. So, Tammy, I think you've left me a couple messages. And um, I, for whatever reason, uh, I had another friend that was needing to talk to me who also left me a message. And for whatever reason, they're going into my uh, voicemail box, and I'm not picking out that I, I'm not seeing any missed calls. So I will try and get a hold of you. Um, at my earliest convenience. So anyway, thanks for all the comments. Thanks for um, watching and listening. Uh, again, those of you that have supported us financially, I want to thank you so much for that. It's been a huge, huge help for us. And just give one final appeal if you're still watching this. Um, any little bit helps. So you have $5, $10, $20. Uh, if you could consider um, even monthly donation, even if it's a small donation. Um, that really helps me, helps my family. We're in a lot of transition right now. Um, a lot of stuff I can't talk about because it's too um, uh, related to things that don't just involve me, and I don't want to talk for other people. So um, anyway, God bless you, namaste, uh, whatever it is that we say to just communicate my intention that it be well with you. And once again, thank you so much for watching this live video.